the number of times I've heard someone say to me, it's not the dead bodies. It was all of the fatigue. It was my partner not understanding me. It was the exhaustion. It was the call after call. I'm Matt Hansen, filling in for Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories about adventure, risk, and rescue in the Jackson Hole backcountry. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety in the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located at the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. As mountain bikers, climbers, skiers, paddlers, and general fun-loving mountain folk, we are really good at talking about the physical aspect of getting injured. Episode after episode on this podcast, we talk openly about how people get lost or hurt in the backcountry and how first responders come to their aid. Usually, the patient gets bandaged up, they go see a doctor, and then eventually, everyone moves on. But sometimes, it's not quite that simple. We have come to understand that experiencing a traumatic event, as well as the cumulative effect of stress over the years, can have a serious impact on one's mental health. And though we have touched on the topic of mental health in this podcast, we are devoting this entire conversation to that issue. We're going to hear from Laura McGladry and Nick Armitage, two of the most knowledgeable and experienced professionals on the front line of addressing mental health for first responders. But even if you are not a first responder, I think you'll find this conversation relevant and relatable on many different levels, especially if you have ever experienced trauma in the backcountry or gone through periods of loss. By openly discussing this topic, it is our hope that we can continue to show that it's okay to not be okay, and that help is available. For additional resources, you can go to the website for this podcast at backcountryzero.com. Okay, now let's hear from Laura McGladry and Nick Armitage. Yeah, my name is Nick Armitage. I work as a park ranger in Grand Teton National Park in the Jenny Lake District. I was a seasonal climbing ranger in that district for eight summers, and then uh, I've been year-round for about four years. Now as a year-round employee in the park, I kind of have a role as sort of the multi-tool of the park service. Um, Some days I'm on the ambulance, some days I'm doing wildland fire or structure fire. Predominantly in the Jenny Lake District, we deal with search and rescue, mountain rescue. My name's Laura McGladry. I'm a family and psychiatric nurse practitioner. And my day job is at University of Colorado. I work at the Stress Trauma Adversity Research and Treatment Center. My main role there as a clinician, I work with law enforcement and fire EMS dispatch at the interface of critical incident stress and depletion stress. So I support a lot of bigger incidents, officer-involved shootings, mass shootings, um, and then critical incidents that occur with first responders in the urban context. I also have a background, if I can say this here, as a dirtbag. Nick didn't identify himself as a dirtbag, so maybe he's not, but that's 
a job title in some ways I hope to never lose. But um, I was a, a Knowles and a wilderness medicine instructor for many years, and a raft guide, and have been involved with rescue and humanitarian aid. But um, my other passion, I run an organization called Responder Alliance, which is really a community of concerned folks who are advancing the national conversation on stress impact in the austere or remote rescuer. And that is ultimately what we are here to talk about, is stress injuries among first responders and rescuers, um, and how we are trying to change that conversation to talk about it more, be more open about it, and then psychological first aid as a way to treat stress injury. I guess I think what we should do is just help define stress injuries and psychological first aid for people who are listening. So stress injury is actually a newer terminology, I think, in the rescue lexicon. And what I noticed working with law enforcement in particular and structural fire emergency responders is that um, people would do everything they could to stay away from me <laughs> and, and come see me. And I, you know, despite trying to be a relational person and decrease the barriers and the stigma, what we realized was the terminology around, for instance, post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety or any of the things that came with that was a tremendous barrier. And it wasn't really even representing what was really happening for folks. And you can see that that if you have a career, whether you're professional or unpaid in, in rescue, for instance, this cumulative stress has a very predictable pattern. And it really is more like an occupational injury than a disorder or anything else. But the problem was people needed a psychiatric diagnosis to walk in the door to see me, and that was just never going to work. So the military was using the terminology around stress injury, and so we adopted that for the rescue industry as well. And so that's been a much more palatable word. I think people understand that you can be impacted by either depletion, long haul, just exhaustion, relational injuries, physical injuries, and psychological injuries all fall under that that category. But I think the real magic in using that terminology for folks is to recognize if you were injured on the job, you could also get better. And it really gave us a new pathway to start talking about being impacted. And it really took it out of the realms of nobody would have an injury where they had a, a back injury or a hamstring injury or a fall or something and then go hide out and not talk about it. You would seek support and rehabilitation and get back out there. And that's where we really needed to change the conversation. And as we have normalized this speech and this, this phrasing of these injuries that occur at work, Nick, is that something that as your career as a park ranger, is this something that you can see and maybe pinpoint when this conversation started and when it started to maybe make sense for, for different rescuers? That's a broad question, thinking back about when that might have started. I think um, I certainly would give huge props to the military for kind of leading the way on this and, and looking at redefining that with that stress injury concept. And and that does take a lot of bravery in, in a field where you're talking about the mental health side of things. I think, um, you know, it kind of maybe goes a little in the originally a little in the face of uh, the sort of tough guy personality and that kind of thing and the sort of suck it up mentality. 
which kind of brings it around to like when I originally started thinking about this was before being a ranger, I was a ski patroller. And before a ski patroller, I was a wildland firefighter. And um, I remember some incidences when I was with a hotshot crew that really strongly affected my management, some people that I really looked up to and to see some of the challenges they were facing and knowing that they were kind of trying to balance like what's the right thing to do with this sort of stress problem and also with the the old old school mentality of sort of the suck it up that was back in the uh, late 90s um, when those conversations were happening in you know at least western emergency services which i think you know the, the military certainly kicked it into high gear i imagine after 2001 september 11 2001 where these things started happening and they had to start dealing with this a lot more and so I think seeing that sort of pre and post kind of war era or modern war era, I think, is probably when I really started hearing terminology coming in and then working as a, a ski patroller and working with a, a doctor on ski patrol uh, with me, Dr. Jim Hoyne in uh, Big Sky, Montana. He started showing me some papers and articles and studies that were coming out of the military. And we started talking about how incidences were affecting our group. And at that time, I was just starting to come down to the Tetons and work as well and um, and started looking at how these things affected the climbing rangers, knowing that there's pretty high exposure level to um, difficult, stressful situations for all the park rangers and, and my particular work group, the climbing ranger staff. Started having conversations with some of the senior members. And I think um, there was a good culture of kind of taking care of our own and checking in on each other. But I also started kind of looking around the the room of the the alumni or the retired rangers and started realizing like, that I couldn't think of anybody who had done their time um, in the Tetons that didn't have some kind of stress injury. And it wasn't apparent to me uh, as a confidant of them or a friend or coworker. Can you describe how someone gets a stress injury? What does that look like? Is it the repeated exposure to the daily stresses of the job? Is it a particular traumatic event? Is it all of the above? We were watching the impact first, trying to figure out how it happened. And it was like someone belayed someone into this big fall and they don't want to climb anymore. Or this person doesn't want to come out anymore. Or they, you know, they're climbing too hard or they're climbing too much or they're irritable. Or, and we just paired those probably with traumatic stress. But I will tell you that the longer that I do this, the more that I understand the complexity. The number of times I've heard someone say to me, it's not the dead bodies. It was all of the fatigue. It was my partner not understanding me. It was the exhaustion. It was the call after call. And I, I do a lot of work with Avalanche and my friend Jason Simmons-Jones, I think, really summed it up this season. He said he was just talking about incremental loading on the snowpack and rapid loading. And I think, you know, the difference between what actually can cause um, that fracture or the slide and I think we can't look at the conversation on stress injuries without looking at incremental loading as well as these traumatic events, which I would say are the rapid loading events. So now I think we'll maybe talk about the stress continuum a little bit. But what we're noticing is that really folks who come into those critical incidents with depletion already, who are exhausted, it, it puts a very particular strain on families and relationships and on the human body. So these are physical injuries, they're relationship injuries, and they're very often mission or moral injuries. You know, I set out to do one thing. I spent my whole life trying to learn how to be a medic or get these certifications, and then 
and when it matters the most, I can't do it for whatever reason. That's the accumulation of stress injury formation. So we can talk a little bit about traumatic stress, and that's very much a part of what happens. But it's it's also that combination of watching the families grieve over time and losing your own friends, many of them, as a climber yourself or a mountaineer yourself, that kind of has this wearying effect or weathering effect that kind of all accumulates together. My favorite mantra is awareness than choice, because once we understand that all those things are impacting us, impact how we retire, impact our bodies, impact our children, then we can really start to get at the heart of addressing them and making new cultural decisions and choices. Yeah, that completely, that resonates. And I think, um, you know, the the terminology that's kind of stuck in my head is what I would consider my baseline stresses, which yes. Laura's referring to as cumulative. And, uh, you know, just like, what stresses am I dealing with? Because I just had to get the kids off to school in the morning at a certain time. And then, um, you know, and then you got to pick them up and there's, you know, there's competing interests in life. And that's just like the baseline stresses before you even get the opportunity to introduce the thing or the incident or the event. And then you look at it all from a capacity standpoint, when you start running out of time in life with careers and other things, other commitments in life, whether it's family or or relationships or anything, things you're volunteering for in addition to your job. But these things are all just pulling on that capacity that you have. And when you're running out of capacity to do some stuff, you're also running out of capacity to cope. Um, to me, I think is a big deal. And, and I'm sure there's a lot more clinical data to support all that that Laura can speak to. But certainly for me, thinking about what that baseline is and then going out and doing the job. And I think one of the things that really rings true on that, that I find a lot with um, the people I'm doing peer support with and working with in the park service is that it's this idea of second guessing themselves on a call that already occurred. And the amount of stress that that adds, the demand on the National Park Service ranger to do law enforcement and fire and EMS and all of those things and day in, day out in the middle of July or August, you know, they've been doing it every day. This constant demand, they're not going to ace every call, you know, and I think that's the expectation they have of themselves. And um, now as a peer supporter, when I'm talking to people, I notice that being that kind of reoccurring theme I hear a lot is, oh, but I didn't quite do this right or I forgot to put the... OPA, the airway device in when I got to that step and I waited a little bit. And and these kind of second guessings can really uh, beat up the high performer. You know, I can only coach them on on some of the stuff I've experienced on that. And and when you see it from an outside perspective, I think it's really obvious that you're like, hey, maybe just beat yourself up on it once and try to move on. And you did the best you could in that moment. And that kind of stuff really, to me, goes from that kind of baseline stress conversation to the like, oh man, you're just adding to it all day long, all night long. You're not sleeping because of second guessing yourself on a hard call. And then, and then it goes into that kind of long-term cumulative. You know, as we have talked about stress trauma in the mountains and in mountain towns, um, is that does that create more challenges? Is that harder to do based on a cultural level? Kind of how do we move forward by making this a little more accepted, even in places where it's, you know, everybody's supposed to be happy all the time? I hear this a lot. And candidly, when I started working, I was an ALS provider with Ski Patrol when I was working my, you know, with law enforcement and day job. And there was no conversation about this. It was always right at the surface that we needed to talk about it, but there was no language around it yet. One of the things that I think has been a tremendous barrier in ski patrol, avalanche, mountain towns, 
is exactly what you said. People in mountain towns have a lot to be happy about. And while that's true, there's a huge disconnect because we also see the mental health metrics and even candidly suicide rates in small mountain towns to be very high. I think one of the challenges with ski patrol in particular was this feeling, we have the best job in the world. And nine people are lined up behind me at all times for this job and I get to ski all day. And I remember a ski patrol director that I was very close to who disappeared while I was working in Africa. I came back and everyone said, well, he just kind of went up in flames. And, and I saw him um, one, at the end of one year and he said, can I really tell you what happened? And he told me a story of substance abuse and PTSD treatment. And I remember saying to him, hey, I, I remember that pediatric tree strike. I was around for that. No amount of bluebird days and thigh deep powder just washes that away. And so what I've been finding in mountain towns, even in the last year during COVID, the stressors that are unrelenting, they are financial. They, you know, mountain towns just finding housing or now, now I'm trying to raise a family and still find a place to live and I don't have insurance half of the year. And you find this in guides, you find this in unpaid or the, the volunteer rescuers, unpaid professionals, we call them. So there actually is this very particular underlying challenge to so much of this work that doesn't get spoken of, but it's financial strain, it's continuous relational strain, it's, you know, it's probably, Nick, that your wife says goodbye to you in May and gets to see you again, you know, in early, late September, if I'm honest, and I hear that across if there's no safety, if you're guiding, if you're rescuing. And so there's kind of emperor's new clothes here. Like, this is the best life on the planet. Like, it is, and it's really hard, and it takes a tremendous impact on mental health. And so many of the contributors that you talk to, you know, the patrollers who have to take on or the rescuers who have to take on extra jobs or work at a restaurant afterwards and don't want to talk about it because everyone thinks their job's the coolest on the planet, those kind of wear and tear things, just survival, directly interface with the things that you see. Because when we talk about how you mitigate and treat, you need enough safety, connection, um, and a sense of community to mitigate traumatic stress. And I think in these communities, we actually need to, we owe it to each other to have these really honest conversations to say, this is really awesome. Yes, they're super sexy jobs, and they're really hard. And they're hard on our bodies, and they're hard on our relationships, and they're hard on our lives. And that's why we see those metrics, I think, in mountain towns. And then all of our friends come to town in NBS because it looks so amazing because they live in the big city. I think that that's a really important point is to recognize that just because you live in the mountains doesn't mean that um, you don't have stresses and that you don't have um, really hard days sometimes. You know, the more we talk about that together, because there's this kind of like, you know, pinky swear kind of like, but let's not talk about how hard it is because it'll make it feel like maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And that's not true. But, you know, these stress injuries can be fatal injury types. And I unfortunately hear the stories many times in mountain towns. And it's it's because it can be incredibly hard just to survive. Yeah, I think I would agree on all of that point is like there's sort of that expectation. Everybody's all blissed out all the time in mountain towns. But on the flip side, like mountains are pretty unforgiving. And if you've chosen to live in these places, you you know, people who've died in avalanches or um, have been involved in climate accidents and uh, mountains can be hard. We are talking to Jenny Lake climbing ranger Nick Armitage 
and Laura McGladry, the director of the Responder Alliance. Let's take a quick break. Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation is proud to host the 7th Annual Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop on October 22nd and 23rd. In its seventh year, WISAW showcases numerous speakers on the leading edge of snow and behavioral science to help Jackson Hole get ready for winter. After last season's disastrous avalanche toll, it's up to all of us to do better. Info and registration at tetoncountysar.org slash I want to talk about the stress continuum and then the psychological first aid. When I first saw the stress continuum, it felt like I was kind of looking at a mirror because I was like, I'd never seen it before. And suddenly something was explaining maybe why I was feeling the way I was feeling at that particular time. Green, yellow, orange, red. Is there a way that you can kind of briefly describe what this stress continuum is? You bet. I mean, in a nutshell, I want to give credit to the fact we've been talking about military combat and operational stress first aid. This is Patricia Watson, Westfall, Bill Nash. They created this for for deployment. And I think that part's really important to us. It was an operational tool. I learned about it from a friend who's a battalion surgeon who used it um, in deployment. And so when you show up on deployment, there was actually this opportunity to identify where you were in terms of stress impact. Were you showing up good to go, as they'd say, operationally ready, physically ready, charged and and able to respond? Or had you already kind of gotten to the yellow where you had, let's say this is your second deployment, and there'd already been a change in your motivation or your desire to do this. And then in, in orange, there was this very distinct, as they created it, change toward distinct movement toward an injury type, which is where we really see that wear and tear and the depletion, likely more substance or numbing tools, sleeps disintegrating, relationships are disintegrating into a red, which they conceptualize as ill and and we now conceptualize and rescue as critically injured, which is really where we put maybe the PTSD and the anxiety disorders and the substance issues, like the psychiatric side of things. What I loved about this when I saw it is it named that stress, as we have talked about it for so long in rescue, isn't binary, that you're completely fine until the day you're diagnosed with a PTSD or an anxiety disorder. But there is this very predictable and commonplace to all of us march over the arc of our careers where we we do it for free. We can't believe we have the sirens on or we get to wear the uniform or we're wearing the radio. And then that day comes from, like you kind of talked about in the mountain towns where people aren't psyched anymore, right? They're like, okay, this is a job. I feel it. I'm not so motivated. I'm not going to sign up for the next training or the next shift, but I'll keep doing it. And then there's this, and I would say as we get into orange and maybe more injured, there's this really distinct moment where relationships are starting to suffering or tune out maybe from your family you have to do more things to tolerate how it feels to do your job and then finally in the red what we might say about people that they get crusty or burned out or toxic what I think has been really powerful about having a continuum where we can kind of note that I'm stress impacted or I'm stress injured first of all it gives us a pathway back because we, I think when I got into this, it was like once you hit that PTSD, they kick you off the island and hope you just disappear somewhere. And now rescuers will always perform well to the best of their ability, even to the red. It will just cost them and their families and their bodies so much. It's not about whether they can perform or not. 
But there's a point where you have cut off your connections, where life doesn't feel like life anymore, where it gets very hard to get back. But traditionally, when people get to that point, we don't say they were injured like we would have in wildland fire. Like, well, that's a chainsaw injury. Let's support them. Let's come around them. Let's bring them food. In this particular injury, when people get toxic, we want to get rid of them. We make it a them problem. And I think the stress continuum has been powerful in rescue because it's a way for us to uniformly say it's an us problem. It's an operational problem. And we want to support you. I think it's really important with this more and more this year to name that these stress injuries can be fatal injury types. And what we tend to see in, in rescuers is because people feel like this is a me problem, I let myself get burnout, I'm crusty, how did I become this? You don't see that you got injured, you think it's a, a moral injury, and you want to protect your family and everyone else from it. And I think naming it externally is something that can you can be injured and you can get better has been really powerful. Green is ready, yellow reacting, orange injured, and then the critical in the red. And to me, those things are, it just makes it so easy to communicate that kind of thing between people. And then doing peer support, one of the really valuable tools, and I believe there's clinical data behind normalizing stress response, right? By just telling people this is a normal response to being stress injured or even to the acute level of a stress response by just giving them that information that brings their stress level down because you can stress about being stressed. You know, um, you have those reoccurring dreams or whatever in, in say an acute stress response. And just to know that reoccurring dreams or second guessing yourself and the performance you had on a particular call, that those are normal things gives people a little more capacity to cope and deal with that stuff. And I think this as a tool that stress continuum is a, such a valuable tool. People can look at it and kind of have that aha moment of this is what I'm going through. So the stress continuum is one tool. What are the steps that people can take to move from the red or orange back into the yellow or green? I don't have a magic wand. I have no magic fairy dust. Even we have wonderful clinical modalities for tra traumatic stress. But in the end, healing or what I would say, trauma doesn't get fixed. It, it gets integrated. It's meant to become part of our story. And so... It's really more about leveraging the ingredients that helps a person make sense of what they've experienced, decrease or balance that depletion, and allow the right conditions for their body, their community, themselves, their relationships to integrate what they've been through and make sense of it. I can never make an incident go away for someone. We look for those times where what you were describing, I would say, is moral injury you know, or a mission injury where like, I did it wrong. I made a tactical error. I saw something happen. I shouldn't. I took someone to the backcountry. I made a forecast. That was a call that I wouldn't, that stuff that we want to live with that's guilt related. So really so much of the stress continuum is, is trying to guide us back to green choices or this place in green. And the problem for many of us, like, you know, it's funny when I, when I first started calibrating this with first responders, I would ask them, like, tell me about a firefighter in the orange. Tell me about one in the red. Lots of examples, like, don't use names and you don't have to make I statements. You know, there were so many examples. But when I would say, tell me about someone in law enforcement um, in, the, in the green, it's like there was crickets. And you realize that um, one of the gifts of the stress continuum in terms of fair warning for new folks coming into the industry 
is to actually get to say, hey, there is a predictable trajectory here that without mitigation, almost all of us will go down this road. So what are your early choices and what different choices can you make that Nick and I maybe didn't in the beginning? I remember working early on with Yosar, we actually, in the beginning of the season, we like mapped out what green choices were for us. Playing my guitar in the meadow, getting time to climb out of this valley sometimes, talking to people, connection with people who don't do anything here. One of, some of the couple of big ones we work on are space for integration. You know, we need time to make sense of the calls that we saw, to talk about them with other people sometimes, to make room for them. And this very busy culture in the heat of the summer, that doesn't happen. So sometimes green choices are saying, no, I have a wall of no <laughs> that I work on all the time. It's making really conscious choices to be in community with other people, with people who get you and know you and getting to talk about the truth of how you're doing. It's sleep, believe it or not. I know it's so basic. Nobody wants me to like prescribe it, but um, it's sleep. It's rest. It's fly fishing because that feeds your soul. It's being in the hot springs. And we forget. We think rescuers are always others before self people. So we put that off to later. And it's, you know, I've never seen anyone just zoom back to green people claw their way. What's been helpful though, um, and I know we've talked about this you know, Jenny Lake's, you know, in some ways a tough place to talk about it because there's already so much cohesion that they, you know, other teams might not see this in the same way, but um, teams can also get injured. And we have you know, calibrated the stress continuum for teams where people stop trusting each other and they don't want to connect anymore and they don't want to spend time. You know, if, if a critical incident happens and I get called into a a team like that, that's why you need a professional because people don't trust each other enough to even talk about what happened. But on teams that work hard toward co cohesion, I'm thinking about softball in the meadow, you know, on the LZ out at Jenny Lake or having barbecues on purpose or climbing together on your days off because you like each other, building that kind of capital, what my patrol calls carbo loading for your soul, like preloading connection. And preloading those steps, um, having a plan for when time things things times when things get rough, that's where I think we're trying to change the culture. Maybe for our young to say, um, you can't just expect to spend, spend, spend all of your life dollars and not put anything back in. So that move toward the green is really paying attention to to what recharges you, so the conditions are right when things happen that are hard to help you kind of make sense of them together like tribes have done for all time it's kind of if you will one of my collateral duties is to help my work group and the other work groups in the park with stress management on big incidents i kind of write down the five things that i deal with when i do peer support and for me those five tools number one is peer support is you don't have to be a trained peer supporter you just have to have somebody who's good at listening and talking and talking about your stress stuff a little bit or not, but just having those moments. Good peer support is number one. Number two is normalizing that stress response. Understanding what a natural or normal stress response is, either long-term or acute and or acute. And just hearing about that normalizing of stress response, as we said earlier, brings the stress levels down. Number three is that psychological first aid and green choices is like being proactive in what habits a person can have and encouraging people when you are the peer supporter to make those green choices. Hey, maybe don't take an extra shift on your weekend. If fishing's your thing, go fishing or 
or go climbing or or if like climbing's adding the stress right now maybe go biking or whatever it is but those good green choices number four is having that professional backbone which here in teton interagency peer support here in teton county so there's all of the first responders in the community but the backbone is that we have professional help we have professional counselors and therapists like laura that will speak with people and meet with people and that i can't really speak to much more than having that professional backbone really helps and then the fifth thing of the of the five is that three three and three which i think we've alluded to a little bit but that's just essentially a checkup system three days three weeks three months checking up on folks and so if you've got somebody that you work with that has come to you with that kind of need for peer support i utilize the skills of the smartphone and i plug it on my calendar with their initials on three days three weeks three months and i just give them at the least a call if not try to face to face and um you know if they've come to me for that peer support i i make a an effort to work on that three three and three that on some of the bigger incidences where we know we've got a really tricky situation or we've had some rescuers that were exposed to a tough situation we'll split the group between a couple people and we'll all do our three, you know, two of us will check in. I've done that with uh, the district ranger and I split the six rescuers from an incident and we checked in on them those periods of three days, three weeks and three months. So those are my tools that I can kind of usually pull out of my brain without having to look at notes or cheat sheets. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to get. Anytime I do peer support, I'm like, all right, now you're trained up. (laughs) You can do it for the next one um, and help out your your fellow rescuers or law enforcement or whatever it is. I'm curious when you're treating psychological first aid, are you asking people if someone has a stress injury that is maybe if they're in the red or the orange, are you relying on them to self-select or is it something that their peer support will approach them with? How does that play out? Increasing awareness in the community, the first responder community, and the culture changing has changed that. So it allows people to not only reach out when they feel like they've had some significant exposure or are feeling those effects or finding themselves in a, in that yellow or orange category. And then also with that increased awareness, you've got more peers going, hey, buddy, <laughs> Nick, it seems like you're having a, a rough day or something how was that call last week? And then actively or, you know, proactively kind of going into that role. So I think it's a little of everything on that right now. Increased awareness on both the people in need and the providers, if you will, the peer support providers. And I think it's just a general culture. I think our leadership in the communities changed dramatically and I can take a lot of credit for the peer support team getting stood up as well. And I think the leaders in the community, are, if they're seeing their next level managers or their people are exhibiting these signs of stress, they're really well-versed in that now too, which has helped a lot and going, okay, this program, this team, this district, this department, whatever it happens to be, those guys have gotten, that crew has gotten, you know, hammered on calls. Let's, let's check in on them and then activating the resource as needed for that. It's funny while you're, while you're saying that, it occurs to me that we will have reached a, a, a place of known cultural change. Like we'll know the culture is changing when you can be in the red and just share that without it being a fitness for duty issue, without it being a how did you let yourself get here issue. If you're listening to this in an area that's not doing the things that are that are happening in the Tetons, I mean, this question comes up a ton. Like the strong message that I think I, I wish I could shout from the rooftop is like, hey, we know you came by this honestly. 
we know that when, you know, when I started this a few decades ago, no one gave me a choice. There was no conversation about this. No one knew this injury existed. And we've seen this play out for many years. Now that we know, let's not criminalize the people who didn't know and are impacted. And let's go after the people who just retired or turned in their radios and disappeared from the teams that we think, hey, that person was probably injured. Maybe they were yelling at us. Maybe they were blaming us. Those are all sometimes things that how red plays out can be very toxic sometimes, but they probably were injured. Should we go after them and check on them and give them a chance to still be a part of this community? I think a lot of just not only the awareness side of this, but that brings us sort of to that idea of prepping and preloading um, and pre-training work groups, um, which you know, I, I can say for my specific work group, we've been doing a lot of that the last couple seasons, um, some of which with uh, Laura coming in on the early season side of things and kind of having these talks. And again, just having some of these talks about awareness and understanding going through these, the stress continuum and that kind of stuff has really um, helped. And I, I think help by help managing it, we get out ahead of it a lot. And I think people can recognize it. They can kind of go into the green choices stuff, the suggestions that Laura was talking about earlier too. And one thing I don't know uh, that maybe Laura can speak to is like, what's it going to look like? Are there programs that have been doing this for 15 or 20 years? Probably not because it's fairly new, but it's going to be potentially a pretty cool thing to see the, that next generation of folks who get to their point of retirement going, yeah, we took care of things differently for me than, you know, my mom's generation when she was a climbing ranger or et cetera, or something like that, you know, to see just how, um, this generational change and cultural change will affect the pre-planning or pre-loading that, um, you know, first or second year climbing rangers are extremely well-versed in this stuff at this point in, in my work group this year. Well, I think we'll know that we're accomplishing something if people stick around, I don't mean to sound like an alarmist, but I, I sometimes feel that we may be facing a mass extinction of, of knowledgeable rescuers who've been at this 30 and 40 and 50 years. I mean, this candidly is what got me into this conversation. You know, I, I got back from doing humanitarian aid in Africa. I had climbed it to the top of every ladder, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And it scared me to think I finally have organizational knowledge. I have, like, eldership wisdom, and I want out of this. Jenny Lake is a really unusual team that I work with in a lot of ways because there are folks who have been there 30, 40, and 50 years. And it is a thing of awe for me when a call comes in to sit there and watch some of the folks who know that terrain like the back of their hand. They know exactly where the person probably went. They know what the conditions are like, where he could land a skid. That is changing in rescue. I also work with teams who have that most of the elders have left with the slamming door or felt excluded or didn't stay because the injuries or the deaths of their friends accumulated in such a way. And I don't think it's just like, man, this would be nice if we started talking about this. I actually think the future of rescue depends on us teaching new and prospective folks about this injury, preparing them, and then supporting those of us who have been impacted to move back from the red so we can stick around and mentor each other and kind of bring that eldership into avalanche and rescue because the challenges aren't going away. So I, I think that's kind of inspiring in a way that 
this is our moment that we really do have to, to change this conversation mm-hmm. and, and to recognize for each other, like to really normalize, man, we know how you got here. You came by it, honestly. Here's, and here's a, a tool. And we actually look at the literature. We look at the, what we call potentially traumatizing events that we know impact rescuers. And if they've been exposed, then let's follow them over time and check in. And that really changes the culture around it's on you or it's your job. As a rescuer, if you've been exposed, we would never do that with a needle stick or a hazmat exposure to be like, needle stick, well, it's on you. Go find yourself some support. And if you start feeling really sick in six months, we'll help you out. (laughs) We would never do that. We'd say you were exposed. It's our job occupationally to support you. So those PTEs might be anything from family contact, which is uh, candidly the one I see most prominently causing injury to rescuers, right? Seeing the wife's face on scene, the mother who shows up at the tree, the, at, you know, when you bring the recovery, the body back to the meadow, whatever it is, that seems to be an exposure that impacts people talking to their family members. And, and that one in particular, right, we could say a lot about, but did that happen? Then we should probably follow this to see if it was impactful. Was it the first time you've ever done a rescue like that? Was there a kid involved? We just know because of because it's primal, basically, that this is likely to impact you in a particular way. Was there a mission injury or helplessness, like Nick mentioned, that's likely to cause an injury? Um, did you have a duty to act, right? Did you Were you at the ranger station sending them out and then seeing a fall? Did you feel responsible for them in some way? So in the first three days, we kind of huddle together. We check in and see where we were on the stress continuum when it hit. Because if you're in green, you probably have some capacity to integrate it. If you were already pushing into orange when this happened, there's a high likelihood it's kind of like being immunocompromised, that this is really going to impact you. So we check in on that, maybe find out what each other's green choices are. Nick comes and picks up the kids and takes them <laughs> somewhere else so I can think. I see if I can get him a day off. He can go fishing. Um, reduce the stressors. Again, those might be operational stressors. Can I take your load off? Can we put you into something with less exposure? Do you have to go right back out there? Can we help you with financial or life or whatever the stressors are? And then just remind each other. I remember getting a call from a climber after he saw a fatality last summer, and he's like, I feel like I have PTSD. I can't think. I can't concentrate. I'm not sleeping. And I got to deliver the good news, which was like that's how the human body responds after three or four days. And it's likely to get better. Let's just make the conditions right for you to integrate and see how it goes. At the three to four week mark, that's when most people, even after they've had that kind of exposure, will quote unquote kind of come down. That level of arousal or hypervigilance comes down, start to make sense of what happened, start to integrate it. And people tend to do pretty well there. But this is our stopping point kind of to check. You can call it a checkpoint. Um, we're using the trauma screening questionnaire at that point. This is a tool that's been around for 20 years. We use it in structural fire. It's a 10-question questionnaire that really just asks questions like um, that really respond to like whether you're still in that state of arousal. So um, are you still having upsetting dreams about the event? Are you still having difficulty concentrating? Are you still irritable? Are you having trouble falling asleep? Do you, are you still jumpy? All of those would indicate that your that your brain has not made sense of that and kind of come down and you're still living in that heightened sense of perceived threat. That means like the fire is still burning, it didn't go out, we should take care of it. Six or more of those 
um, on our rescue teams, the recommendation is that you would see somebody who's a professional or at least talk to peer support and just share what's going on. And if not that, talk to your partner. Or if you don't want to do any of those things, we often will joke about this with law enforcement, at least you should know for yourself, for fair warning, that you're at high risk for a stress injury. I always tell the cops I work with, if you don't want to tell anyone how you do on this, I don't care. It's like going to Walgreens to get your blood pressure checked. As long as you know it's 190 over 120, that's a starting place. But that's a tool that we use to kind of monitor. We leverage those green choices again at three to four weeks. We check in on the stressors again and do what we can to just support each other. And the phone call doesn't have to be like, I'm calling you to check in on my on your, <laughs> on your 333. It could be as simple as, hey, man, how's it going? Where do you think you're on the stress continuum? Anything I can do right now to take a load off? And then the final three-month, we actually built in four teams like Ski Patrol, like national parks that were seasonal in nature because many times we go through these massive events together the patrol season ends, the rescue season ends, you know, the park season ends, and then you're on the wildland fire line or something else, and nobody was around. And so to get a phone call or to get a check-in from someone who was there has is really impactful. And all the while what we're doing is just reminding each other that as, hum- as human machines, these kind of depletion and traumatic stressors leave an, a mark, and let's take care of them in real time together. So that's the three, three, and three that Nick talked about. We talked a little bit about preloading or pre-gaming, and you talked about the increase, the spike in uh, line of duty and active duty deaths for first responders in the past year. Um, a difficult subject, but mm. can we talk about that for a little bit and how that how that pre-gaming works, how that preloading works? And as you said, it's not an easy topic, but. Um... Essentially, what we did is uh, we kind of sand table or tabletop exercise with uh, we, we started with a small group of us just to see how it would go um, and how it would impact, um, you know, our average group member. And um, Laura was there for that and kind of because I, I assume she'd done it with some other work groups and kind of kind of got us going and asked questions at stalled points. But we we basically came up with a scenario that would be uh, something that would kind of qualify as our worst day for Jenny Lake, where we're dealing with, um, you know, an incident and then there's an incident within the incident. Um, You know, we deal with a decent amount of aviation work. um, And so we'd be looking at some kind of an accident that involved our own people and how we would deal with that. And I think, um, yeah, we were pretty tentative uh, dipping our toes into that water to start that conversation. But, um, and I can, I can say from a personal standpoint, the night after we did that initial exercise, I was like, wow, that was, that was a bit much. Um, and, uh, you know, spending time with my kids that night was, Mm -hmm. was pretty, uh, uh, impactful there. Um, and I thought a lot about stuff, but I can look back on this exercise too, and just say that it was, to me, it was worthwhile. I think we have a good plan. We've got some things in writing. We've got kind of the, oh, in in case of emergency, open this envelope, you know, the break this glass um, kit, if you will, which can kind of help us for the things that we may be overwhelmed with. And we get to make these decisions without the stress of the incident. Um, for example, um, are we handing off our operation 
to a local agency um, like Teton County SAR, who we work with quite a bit. And I think um, that was one of the things is like really finding the things that we want to keep in-house and figuring out what we wanted to outsource that would help take things off our plate. And I, th I just found it a very valuable exercise. And then um, after that exercise, and that was last summer, I think we did that with, uh, there was three or four of us, uh, including Laura. And then we, this spring, early summer, we, we sort of presented that to our entire work group. And, um, and it was an optional training, which I th thought was really nice and valuable. And a few folks were, were just like, nah, I'm out. I'm good. Um, for whatever reason, uh, they just don't need to go through that mental exercise. And, I, and everybody was super supportive of that. And I thought that was a good, good way to go. And uh, again, I think for those of us who, um, stuck through it, found it valuable. Other people were like, yeah, take it or leave it. Um, I think, you know, it just depends on where everybody's at in their career and their time. Some, some of our folks are just, they're machines and they're like an incident's an incident. I'll keep responding. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, uh, it was just a healthy exercise for me to go through. And I think that many people in our work group found that um, to be a good one. And we kept it very operational too. You know, we talked a lot about who's going to be in charge. It would be one of these four people would be continuing to run our incident. Um, who's going to be family liaison? Well, we're going to probably pull in some of those alumni legacy folks to come back who know what we're dealing with and um, know the spouses and partners and everything like that and um yeah and i think having that kind of pre-gamed does help a lot it will save a lot of the chaos of a bad incident so that we can continue to perform do the job um, and move forward and, and be a successful work group going forward and i think that was an important step for us um you know and one of the things we were talking about too is like what are we going to be doing a month out after something like that and, you know, if that's say that month out is still in August, we're fully go time in the park and, and talking about literally listing names and putting some phone numbers in that kit on who's who we can pull in from other parks that have worked here, are familiar with the Tetons that we want to work with. They can take over our operation, that kind of thing and um, and help us in, in ways that would be really valuable. So, yeah, I think just that pregame of our worst day was a very valuable exercise. It might sound like what kind of person would put you through that or why would we do that? And I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, as a person who gets a lot of phone calls, and I know that you talked about Ray Shriver's incident on this podcast, and I wish I had a magic wand to make all of those sad things untrue. But the thing that goes through my head a lot and this year has been no exception is that that dying is an inherent part of living and venturing and loving the mountains. And despite the fact that we know all that, so often we're so surprised. And when people reach out to me and say, we just had an aviation crash, there was just an avalanche, there was just a death of one of our rescuers, it always feels like such a surprise. And if you, if you get really nerdy into like how traumatic stress forms, novelty is one of the things that cues the brain to say, uh-oh, I don't know if I can handle this. And so there's actually um, a little method to that madness to eliminate novelty. You know, in the same way with my kids, I they have letters in case we talk about if I die, um, this is what's going to happen. They know that it could be part of the story, not one we dwell on or focus on too much, 
But I think um, with rescue teams, so often when folks reach out to me, I wish we already had the framework in place. And so we'll already we'll often use that time. What I think happened with, with Jenny Lake that was really an exception in some ways, we're starting to see more of more of it in the industry is to to give people a choice. What what would you like? Do you want outside people coming in? Where's where are your sacred places? Do you want us to keep people out? What are your preferences? Um, that anytime we can give people their own choice back, it combats traumatic stress. So if you think about trauma, there's a through line all the time, which is I couldn't do anything about it and I felt really helpless and I didn't know what to do. That's why psychological first aid protects rescuers. And that's why having a plan where something terrible happens and you can pull out the quote unquote envelope and say we've designated what we want. One of the things I see happen to teams a lot without pre-planning is that they don't always have the opportunity to rescue their own, which I think always hurts the team. So if we can say, as we did in Jenny Lake, no, everybody wants at least an opportunity to be involved in that initial rescue because it's right order. The Marines do it right. We bring our own home. But in the, after that phase, everyone's going to need some downtime to grieve in their own way. So let's pregame what it would look like to bring in Denali or Rainier or some other team to help in that intermediate phase. And then what will it look like to resume operations in a way that honors the person who has died or who's injured, but still acknowledges the fact that we still have work to do and it's good for our brains to get back into structure. And and then in the midst of all that, how do we communicate? Because candidly, as I work with line of duty deaths, um, again, in law enforcement, and I'll differentiate, line of duty death would be someone who actually died rescuing. Active duty death would be those, someone who was on your team who maybe was doing something else, skiing or something else, but that's not showing up for their shift anymore. And we really still have to find a language forward. It's often the way we communicate about that, that either really helps our brain land and kind of find safety or really hurts people. The number of times I've heard people injured by how they found out or who communicated or who got left out of communication. So pre-gaming even a template for how you're going to communicate what's going on. We talked about it, Jenny Lake. How will that communication continue over time? Who will be in charge of that? What kind of things do people want to know? That's that's powerful new technology, I think, in rescue. I think I would add to this exercise too is it doesn't have to be this like rip your heart out very painful right. exercise. It can, better, it can, better if not in some ways. Yeah, it, it can be very operationally based of like let's just say who's who's in charge, get a flow chart, have an ops, have an IC, kind of figure out the operational side of things and how things are going to flow and what things that as a work group you're willing to to outsource a little bit. Like you said, bring in other park rangers, bring in Teton County SAR, whatever it happens to be. Um, but again, you can keep it pretty operational. And I can say, speaking personally, is like the the part that was um, debilitating to me later that night was I I kind of chose to take my my head down that um, path. And that that doesn't have to be the case, you know, and and, um, and I can also say that the exercise itself, especially carrying it into the entire work group. Uh, alleviated the thing that made it debilitating with my children later. I kind of had this sense of, you know, they're going to be fine. Mm. My mm. people will take care of my people kind of thing. And that was that was very comforting for me too. We've been talking about resilience and resilience teams um, for the last little while. Um, what is a resilience team and kind of how do you facilitate that? Well, resilience teams are really this kind of concept that came out of 
some of the Responder Alliance work on really speaking to this in your own culture, right? So someone who does snow safety actually needs a different conversation than someone who does wildland fire and who's different than someone else who does ski patrol or as Nick mentioned, if you're in the parks, you do all of those. <laughs> and so how do we actually get the conversation into, how do you bring the stress continuum and kind of calibrate it into your culture? And how do you bring it into the work that you do without it feeling like imposed or something we have to do? And so these resilience teams, and they all have different names and different cultures, are really just small, I would call microcultures on teams, we try and have it not just be one person, but a small group because it can be challenging and you kind of need your own sub connection in there like peer support often has. So we, so hopefully it's folks who are somewhat at least committed toward moving toward the green who really have a passion for this conversation who then bring that conversation with resources into their own group to forward it in the national conversation. And so we, we actually have resilience teams on ski patrol um, we, we work through task force and resilience teams at Responder Alliance. And so the resilience teams are operating in all these kind of different arenas. And you are, uh, along with the Teton County Search and Rescue and the SAR Foundation here, um, working to host a Rocky Mountain Resilience Team Summit in early October. That's right. We've found that um, over the last few years as we've had resilience teams that the real magic is actually getting those teams together they cross-pollinate, we like to say. They share their best ideas, and they're off to the races, and that's where culture is really happening. And Nick's talked a lot about peer support. In some ways, this is a precursor to peer support in rescue to really bring on the people who are passionate and continue to empower them and give skills. This really should be a grassroots effort because it's changing culture. It never really succeeds to have this come from the top. And so this is an opportunity, and at Responder Alliance, we're really thankful to partner um, here with the Teton County Interagency Peer Support and with the TSAR Foundation to just allow people to be together. As we say, Lord willing, and the COVID don't rise, we'll see what happens there. But the hope is that they can be together. Then when things happen after the fact and we know each other, there's this kind of natural progression that people reach out to each other and support each other. And so in some ways, I think we're forwarding this peer support movement naturally um, into rescue culture. And that summit is being held here in Jackson, um, October 1st and 2nd. And you can find a lot more information about the summit and resilience teams and the 333 and the stress continuum at responderalliance.com. And then um, you can always go to tetoncountysar.org as well to find information about this and about tips as well for uh, local first responders. I want to wrap this up by just thanking you both for being here so much and speaking about these issues. You just called it new technology, and hopefully this will just keep going and what you both are doing in your respective places of making it normal to talk about this stuff making it normal to open up about this stuff because I think not only is it applicable to rescuers, but it's also applicable to just everyone who recreates in the backcountry and loves being outside and loves being in the mountains. Laura McGladry, thank you so much for being here and Nick Armitage, you as well. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for caring about the conversation enough to have us on and carry it forward. Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen. 
This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.